Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. I'm Marika Proctor. I'm a second-year MAR student in Religion and the Arts, and I have the pleasure in this episode of speaking with Dr. Ephraim Aboud Ishak, who is a scholar of the 7th-century Christian bishop and writer Jacob of Edessa. Dr. Ishak's career has been spent crisscrossing the Middle East, Europe, and the United States to examine and catalog ancient Syriac liturgical manuscripts and other surviving fragments. This has taken him all the way from ancient monasteries in the Egyptian desert to quiet academic libraries on the plains of central Minnesota. Dr. Ishak grew up in Aleppo, Syria, but joins us here at the ISM for the second time from his home in Austria, where he teaches liturgy and Syriac language at the University of Salzburg and the Central European University in Vienna. He holds a PhD from the Holy Spirit University of Kaslik in Lebanon and a master's from St. Vladimir's Theological Seminary in Crestwood, New York, as well as numerous research fellowships, including um, one at the Foundation for Religious Studies in Bologna, Italy. Ephraim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, dear Marika, for having me. I'm curious. Let's just begin. Give us a sense of what brought you to liturgical studies. Well, that's really a a good uh, beginning to start our conversation. In fact, that uh, I'm lucky to come from the tradition itself. So I'm a practitioner. Uh, I serve the altar at the Syrian Orthodox Aramaic tradition. Uh, And at the same time, later on, when I started my academic career uh, and my research, uh, I could uh, find that how it was a great experience to uh, combine the both uh, experience as being practitioner and also as studying them academically in a systematic way. So what I could find at a later stage, uh, you know, that you serve the liturgy, but there are many times that you don't really uh, understand why Mm -hmm. you are doing this and that. But at the same time, also, that when I went to academia, uh, there were also many uh, uh, scholars that um, they could not really realize that some of the stuff that they are puzzled to to solve, Mm -hmm. that actually that they are in the ongoing tradition. So um, they really need to dialogue with each others. And I'm kind of uh, uh, happy to to combine both experiences. So I try to tell scholars uh, in my academic career about what things are really practiced in the ongoing tradition. And at the same time, you know, I try to uh, bring my academic experience while uh, serving uh, at the Syrian Orthodox churches to uh, tell them about um, some uh, notes uh, and some of the findings mm-hmm. in the academic uh, field. So personally, I'm also a member in the Syrian Orthodox uh, Patriarchate uh, Commission on revising the new liturgical text. Mm-hmm. And uh, currently, uh, I have been also busy on revising uh, the uh, official lectionary by the Syrian Orthodox mm-hmm. Church. Uh, that is going to be proposed to the Holy Synod uh, next June. So I'm really happy that uh, I can have both of them and being here this year at uh, the Yale Institute of Sacred Music has been a great uh, opportunity uh, to uh, to rethink again 
of this interesting uh, combination between uh, both uh, sides. I'm curious, um, just given then your academic research, you're, you're talking about some of these revisions to the lectionary, which is a yearly cycle of readings that happen in the church. What sorts of revisions are you proposing? Yeah, the thing is that uh, in, in the manuscripts uh, for, for the Syriac tradition uh, concerning the lectionaries, as you mentioned, that these are the readings that uh, they are read uh, for the liturgical year uh, through different cycles. Uh, we have different traditions, so it's uh, really uh, astonishing from uh, someone coming from the tradition, but it's not really astonishing for scholars mm. because uh, you know that the tradition uh, was developed uh, through different uh, periods of times. So uh, it was uh, really a great experience uh, to study the manuscript tradition uh, of the lectionaries in the mm -hmm. Syriac tradition. And then we started to relook uh, about uh, the uh, index uh, of the lectionary that started especially in the 20th century. And we were surprised as a, as a committee working on that. Uh, we are working with bishops uh, and uh, our uh, coordinator is uh, His Eminence Bishop Roger Akhras, more Severus Roger Akhras in the Syrian Orthodox Patriarchate. And uh, through that workshop, we could find that how sometimes readings were not really related to the tradition, but we don't know how they ended up in mm. the manuscript tradition. So we started to rethink what is logical, because as you know, uh, liturgy is uh, um, sometimes depending on the different circumstances according to time and place. Mm. So According to our current circumstances, we could find uh, as, a, as, a, as a committee working on the uh, lectionary uh, that uh, what we should exclude, what we should include, what we should shorten, what we should make uh, longer. Mm. Uh, but again, based on clear methodology, depending on uh, the manuscript uh, tradition. Wow, cool. I mean, I know you're, you're working on a number of research projects. One of the things that you've been busy with has been... Um, translating some of your PhD work on the anaphora of Jacob of Edessa into English. For people who might not be familiar um, with liturgical traditions, can you just tell us what an anaphora is and, and how and why perhaps it's so central to Eastern liturgies? This is a very good question. Uh, of course, the word anaphora can mean different things. For people of linguistics and, and studying languages, anaphora means another thing. But uh, anaphora specifically in this context uh, of uh, liturgical studies is uh, the specific uh, Eucharistic prayers. And the word anaphora literally is a Greek word, and then it came to Syriac as a Greek loan word to Syriac, and it means uh, carrying, uh, lifting up, uh, and then it's connected with the word of uh, offering. Mm. Um, it uh, could be also directly connected with the specific prayer that lift up your minds or lift up your hearts uh, to the highest. Uh, and this is one of the ancient uh, prayers in the Christian uh, tradition. But uh, uh, then it became uh, a term to describe the divine liturgy or the prayers of the priest that to uh, pray for uh, making the prayer of the divine liturgy or the Eucharist or like in the Catholic terminology it's called also the Mass but uh, uh, it is uh, in short the Eucharistic uh, prayers. Now the Syrian Orthodox tradition is distinguished by uh, really a very rich uh, tradition. We are talking about over 80 texts of anaphoras mm -hmm. uh, and this is a kind 
of a unique experience. We don't witness it in the other Eastern Christian traditions. Uh, there were many questions since I was uh, a kid, you know, why do we have these uh, huge diversities? When I started as a kid, I was impressed of having 10 anaphoras in, in manuscript. And then uh, when I went to academia and I started to investigate the question, then I was surprised to find that actually we have a very rich tradition over uh, 80 anaphoras. And that's how I started my academic research on the anaphoras, uh, starting um, my PhD working on one single anaphora attributed to uh, Jacob of Edessa. When I say attributed, that we are not really sure because uh, uh, the, the structure of the liturgy itself is now, we know, because uh, of, of many studies, thanks to uh, several scholars, that the structure itself, it could be um, a late first millennium thing. But uh, what I could find in my dissertation that the, uh, um, the, the words and the phraseology, uh, linguistically speaking, there are many uh, common uh, elements with the writings of Jacob of Edessa. So what I did in my dissertation, uh, shortly speaking, uh, I invented a methodology, uh, I created a corpus for uh, uh, what was written by Jacob of Edessa himself through letters, uh, other kind of theological works, uh, such as uh, the, word, uh, the work of Six Days of Creation, or called the Hexameron, and that's what I did for my master at St. Vladimir Seminary. I compared preliminarily his work on the Hexameron with Basil of Caesarea. But uh, constructing this corpus, linguistic corpus of Jacob of Edessa from one side, I also created another small corpus at that time during my PhD based on 12 anaphoras. And I tried to compare these texts attributed to uh, this uh, father from the 7th century who was uh, an important, uh, was a polymath and he was uh, an important scholar. He knew Greek very well. That's why he did many translations from Greek to Syriac. We should keep in mind and remind our listeners that uh, because of that movement, it's also contributed uh, in the transmissions of civilizations. So from Greek to Syriac with other scholars at that time, and then from Syriac to Arabic, and then from Arabic to Latin uh, at the medieval times. So uh, Syriac uh, and, and Jacob of Edessa was one of the key people who played a crucial role in the transmissions of civilizations. And this is not only theology or philosophy, this was all one package. So um, uh, I could find that there are many similarities between the text attributed to Jacob of Edessa and uh, his writings. But again, this would not really solve the, uh, the issue confidently, whether he wrote the text or whether it was attributed to him based on someone who had absorbed the writings of Jacob of Edessa. And uh, that later could lead me that it's not enough to study this anaphora, but I had to study the other uh, anaphoras and the big heritage. I'm really grateful for this great experience because this could lead me to dive into the, uh, the world and the rich heritage of uh, Syriac anaphoras. And this year, while being privileged to be 
a fellow at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, uh, I could uh, uh, rework on the dissertation, which was written in Arabic, uh, for one simple reason, because uh, uh, and that was one of the starting points while, while, while choosing to work on uh, the anaphora of Jacob of Edessa, that it is crossing uh, the three confessions of the West Syriac liturgical traditions, thus to say the Syrian Orthodox or the Syrian Miaphysite, the Maronite tradition, the Maronite Catholic tradition, and the Syrian Catholic tradition. So for me, that was uh, coming from ecumenical perspective. Then if we agree, three of us, that mm -hmm. this is a canonical anaphora between the Catholic and the Orthodox, then let's uh, uh, pray with it. And that's why I offered my dissertation in Arabic because uh, this is the language for uh, these three churches in the Middle East to pray in one liturgical text and uh, that could help uh, building some uh, ecumenical uh, vision with these uh, traditions. Right. So um, I hope that uh, this could uh, help also um, the ecumenical dialogue over there. Uh, and now for this year, that's uh, according to uh, scholars, and one of them is Professor Brian Spinks, to whom I'm very grateful that he really urged me and encouraged me to do the work in English. Well, it's a, it's a great example of both yeah, the discourse happening academically and then also having some practical effect or importance right, to the actual praxis of these liturgies, as you've just described. I'm curious on that on that topic of of, of praxis. Uh, you know, you've you've gone all over the world to, to catalog and find these fragments of Syriac manuscripts. Um, sometimes, right, only in piece form. So there's only so much that we know. I'm curious if you could speak to us a little bit about what other what other risks sort of face these really important documents. And as you've done work with digitization and 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 answering those questions. Um, how might scholars continue to work with communities that might hold um, and, and need to carry forth um, the legacy of these manuscripts? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and to give you an idea about my tradition, I mean, uh, when we pray, we always use manuscripts. So uh, the, the manuscripts are not simply uh, pieces of art uh, and antiquity that we keep them at, at special place. In fact, we use them daily, mm. uh, literally speaking, at the liturgy. So even in the daily office in the Cathedral of St. Ephraim the Syrian in Aleppo, where I'm coming from, we always use manuscripts. So I was really uh, uh, privileged uh, and, and blessed, actually, to know the word of manuscripts uh, uh, when I started serving uh, the church. Uh, and that could encourage me and lead me to the marvelous world of manuscripts. Mm. Uh, for me, manuscripts, especially the liturgical manuscripts, uh, are, are simply uh, symbols of, uh, of a living community. It's not simply a, a book that you get it published. I don't, of course, underestimate the, the, the importance of published books, but manuscripts, that there is uh, this mystical relationship or liturgical relationship between the scribe or the scribes, regardless if they are male or female, because part of my personal interest is to look for the female scribes or female donors who paid money uh, for uh, funding, uh, writing a certain liturgical manuscript, as uh, as we know from some colophons. Mm. Those are uh, notes at the end uh, of the manuscripts, and sometimes in the liturgical manuscript, we find them in the marginalia, mm -hmm. so in the margins. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things do they end, from, from your research, as you come across the colophons, 
What do they end up saying, especially in a liturgical manuscript? What are the scribes saying? Well, that's the thing. The Syriac tradition is also unique in, in this matter. So this is um, um, somehow uh, special in the case of the Syriac manuscript that they are not only giving you the dates or the place of, uh, of making the manuscripts, but also they are giving you the whole details about the life of the community. Mm. So the social history of the community is, is simply saved and recorded in the colophons. Uh, I mean, that's part of, 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 of the experience of, of the adventure coming from the tradition. You know, sometimes when a deacon would read a lengthy prayer, you know, I could see always a priest uh, either reading previous colophons uh-huh. of his predecessors, and then he would take a pen and then he would add, add. another note. Wow. And this could include everything, earthquakes. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, um, uh, political events, uh, historical issues, mm-hmm. uh, ordinations, consecrations of churches, uh, some troubles, and sometimes some good news. And in my research, what I could find uh, while working with manuscripts, uh, um, not only with the liturgical, but for other further projects, some colophons, they are telling us uh, uh, really uh, uh, a unique uh, story about an eyewitness for a certain invasion. I remember one manuscript from the Syrian Orthodox Patriarchate Library uh, uh, that I'm again involved with this project and I proposed it uh, for uh, Austria uh, and now we are done from the project. Uh, we, We could find that one testimony was so unique to tell us about the invasion of the ancient city of Edessa in the 12th century. And the author of the Colophon somehow that could really write the whole story. So we are not only talking about few lines, we speak about pages. Mm. Uh, Very recently, I worked on a liturgical manuscript, uh, uh, which is from the daily office or the book of Shimo, what we call it in Syriac. And uh, apparently the the scribe, he wanted to write a colophon, that's to say the traditional way, the name of the scribe, Mm -hmm. the name of the church, Mm -hmm. and uh, the place and the time. But then the scribe kept going to describe all the details about the massacres of the end of the 19th century, exactly in 1895, in the region of Diyarbakir, in the region of Edessa and the surrounding. And and, and that was really so touching for Mm -hmm. me. I remember I was at my office at ISM, uh, the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, and I was simply frozen. You know, he was giving all these details when the works of historiography are silent about it. We don't know much about it. Mm. We only know from the collective uh, memory of people who could survive or second generation. But to find it in a colophon at the end of a liturgical manuscript Mm -hmm. to tell us about the massacres of 1895, um, that was really uh, something uh, so important, so important not only for me uh, as a person who is coming from the community, but also important for the scholarly community to add another piece of evidence, another testimony of what happened at certain time, at specific region, when uh, the official books of history uh, do not uh, talk uh, about it. Right. So what I'm hearing you say is that the manuscripts in a liturgical setting are very much used. They're not, they're not simply kept on shelves. They're, they're used and they're added to, um, and they contain a lot of information 
that might be missed in other academic history. So would you envision then a project of digitization being able to sort of capture that hugely important information while, while allowing then the object to continue to be used in, in church, basically? Well, of course, digitization is one of the solutions and perhaps is a necessity nowadays. We mm -hmm. cannot simply uh, ignore it. But at the same time, it's not the solution. Okay. okay, so I think that because nowadays recently, you know, that since uh, two decades ago, I have been personally involved in, in, in several digitization projects. But after a while, you start to uh, really, you know, think about it, uh, you know, whether digitization is the only solution. I mean, digitization is one of the solutions, mm. of course, to preserve and to protect the identity of this manuscript, especially when we speak about a challenging region such as the Middle East, where we are still witnessing atrocities, catastrophes. Mm. Uh, one of the examples, for example, in, in, in Mosul, uh, north of Iraq, or in Syria, uh, where we had uh, the atrocities of ISIS when they invaded uh, monasteries, Christian villages, and uh, sometimes that there was an intentional destruction for the heritage over there, or what we call it, Demnetium Momaria, because it's not only to uh, destroy the buildings and kill the people. The, the most important thing, strategically speaking, for invaders is to clean uh, the memory about those communities. So what happened, you know, that when uh, manuscripts were lost or destroyed, uh, digital images were the only witnesses uh, and testimony is about what was there in that library. But of course, this should not um, uh, uh, be understood that uh, the, the physical codices are uh, less important. In fact, they are the, 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 the real uh, objects for me. And mm -hmm. from my experience, mm -hmm. I have been since decades working on digital images. It's another experience when working with the manuscript as a physical object itself. Right. Right. I remember my personal experience working at the Vatican Library or here at the Beinecke Library uh -huh. or at uh, the special collections of the Yale Divinity School. It's totally another experience while touching these objects and then you smell the incense and then mm. you can see many traces about uh, the community who has used uh, these uh, uh, objects. So uh, we should be very grateful uh, for the librarians who had uh, rescued these manuscripts, and that's a term or a metaphor which I suggest and I call it manuscripts as refugees. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes librarians uh, really uh, uh, offered their life. In our projects with uh, uh, cataloging uh, the Syrian Orthodox Manuscript uh, Library, um, you know, in Damascus, again, with the war in Syria, the first priority was, of course, to digitize. Sure and then to make sure that we keep backups in different places in the world. But um, what I would like to insist here, mm. that some digitization projects, they really think that, that they have everything. And sometimes uh, uh, it's uh, sad, uh, symbolically speaking, when these projects would claim that this is their collections. Uh, this symbolically could be really hurtful yeah. for the librarians and for the indigenous communities yeah. who paid their lives, you know, just to protect 
you know, what we have nowadays is only what could survive through all the atrocities in history. So symbolically, this is maybe a message that I can uh, transmit through mm -hmm. this podcast, that at least symbolically, we have always to remember that this is a living tradition, right. a continuing tradition, and the minimum thing to do is to respect this uh, uh, community or the tradition which could preserve this uh, manuscript. So digitization is one strategy for sure uh, to preserve the written heritage, world written heritage. But on the other hand, we have to work on another strategy is to help the community of how to protect the physical objects, the manuscripts themselves, right. because there are a lot of things that we can learn from the objects. And of course, uh, we should work with a mission that we have really to help uh, that written heritage survive. Here I can uh, remember Professor Stephen Davis from Yale University, who has been involved with several projects in Egypt, uh, um, especially uh, in, the, in the White Monastery in Upper Egypt. And I remember that once he mentioned uh, in, in a podcast that when we do a cooperation mm -hmm. with the monasteries and with the churches, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the Near East, we should keep in mind that we are building relationships. And, and this relationship should be based on uh, sincerity, and it's not just simply a matter that I come, I digitize, and I say goodbye. Sometimes they don't say even goodbye. So back to Professor Stephen Davis' statement that we should always remind ourselves that when we go and when we do projects of digitization, we should really make authentic relationships with the people who are continuing the tradition. Otherwise, if you are believing them, it's a very sad message. It's somehow that you are not really important anymore. I made my digital copies. Right. Right. And right. Uh, I don't, don't really care. Nowadays, you know, I'm convinced that we should do both strategies, digitization yeah. and at the same time working on the codicological preservation for the manuscripts. And that's what I try to do with my uh, current and, and future projects with the libraries in the Middle East. Thanks for that. Thank you so much. You are heading back in a couple of weeks to Austria um, to start work on a pretty exciting project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thank you, Marika, for, <laughs> for bringing this. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm grateful to uh, the Austrian Fund for Research for generously uh, uh, accepting my proposal, my project. It was selected, uh, and that was a great joy uh, when I knew the news a month ago. Uh, what I'm going to do, as I told you, I'm coming from the tradition, and I remember one story when I was a kid uh, and uh, trying to search in the liturgical manuscript at the altar. I, I I remember very well that there was one manuscript that actually the binding itself is coming from the fragments. Mm -hmm. And I was always curious about the content of this uh, uh, binding or this uh, fragmentary binding. And it was not the only manuscript, so there were several other examples that where we find fragments at different places in the manuscript. So this was carried with me during my research uh, journey. 
And uh, sometimes I started to create some strategies to identify them by creating primitively some uh, uh, small uh, databases based on files, uh, typing them, transcribing. Uh, sometimes I was lucky enough, and I remember that uh, my greatest joy when I could identify a fragment from the collection of Yerevan in Armenia. This mm. is a Syriac fragment. Mm. And I could identify its place in a manuscript nowadays. It's in the British Library Museum. Uh, so that was a great joy, and uh, I remember that uh, you know that uh, that uh, I expressed my happiness uh, in, in my apartment in Graz with my family uh, because it was like in the Gospel when we uh, when we read about that woman who could find her uh, lost coin, and that shepherd who could find his lost sheep. So. To find the connection between a fragment which is totally different from where the manuscript is, is a great joy. And then I started the idea of identifying these fragments, which I call them puzzles. Mm -hmm. So trying to identify these scattered puzzles at different parts of the world will be a, a great uh, contribution to the scientific community not only in the liturgical studies, but other uh, fields as well. And also, it's somehow going to solve uh, several ambiguities for the community. So again, you know, I try always to make sure that, uh, that, that our academic projects should have a kind of uh, humanitarian uh, perspective mm -hmm. and, and target how to, how to, to help the, the, the living community of understanding the importance uh, of bringing things together after being scattered because of different circumstances, let's say migrations, mm -hmm. uh, uh, refugees because of wars and other stuff. So that would be my next project after I finish my fellowship here uh, uh, in Austria uh, and then we will uh, construct uh, a big database uh, corpus uh, uh, thanks to the instruments and the tools of digital humanities. Uh, we are going to make it a, a, a link database and then we will start identifying different fragments from different collections. Wow, well, it's, it sounds like the work is sort of never-ending and um, that's just such a rich place to be in um, and we look forward to getting to see some of this work uh, that you'll be completing and thank you so much for speaking with us about the historic manuscripts and the living tradition um, which hold and which carry forth those manuscripts. Thank you, Dr. Ishak. Thank you so much, dear Marika, for having me. And I would like to thank uh, the whole community, the wonderful community of the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, everyone, and especially to our dear uh, Sachin, uh, yes. our media director, who is recording this interview. Yes, so you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.